stay tuned at the end of the episode for a special offer for Review Systems listeners from the Harvard Center for Primary Care on an upcoming conference. Hello and welcome to Review of Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, health policy, and more. I'm Thomas Kim. Today, I'm honored to bring to you a discussion with Dr. Tom Bodenheimer, an icon and guru on primary care transformation. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. Please also rate and review us and share us on social media. You can find an archive of our show at www.rospod.org. So without further ado, it's an honor to introduce this week's guest. Dr. Tom Bodenheimer is one of the world's foremost experts in primary care redesign. A general internist, he spent 32 years in primary care practice in San Francisco's Mission District. He is currently Professor of Family and Community Medicine at UCSF and founder and co-director of the Center for Excellence in Primary Care. He's written extensively in journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Annals of Family Medicine and Health Affairs, uh, on health policy and healthcare delivery for chronic disease management, high-performing primary care clinics, and the quadruple aim, which are articles consistently in the most read list for the journal Annals of Family Medicine and are among his most cited work. We focused much of our conversation on his work visiting high-performing primary care practices and what he and his co-authors learned. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm honored to, to do this. Uh, if you don't mind, could you give the honest audience a little bit of a background of uh, who you are and uh, uh, your path to studying high-performing primary care? Sure. Um, I'm a general internist. After finishing my residency at University of California, San Francisco, I, I did full-time primary care practice in a low-income mostly Latino neighborhood of San Francisco for 32 years, 10 years in community health center and 22 years in private practice. So I'm pretty much a practitioner. I did then join UCSF uh, Center for Excellence in Primary Care to become sort of an academic. Um, and I've done a lot of writing and research uh, uh, on health politics. That was a big interest of mine, including when I was in practice. Um, in terms of your question about how we started studying high-performing primary care practices, primary care was kind of a depressing thing. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, it looked like no one was going into primary care. So I started um, visiting primary care practices that worked really well, and it really it, it just gave me a real boost. You know, it's like if you go see a practice that's really inspiring, it just changes your whole attitude, and it makes you feel like, okay, primary care really can work. What we need to do now is to spread how really good practices do their do things to all the practices, and so that's what I've been interested in doing. Uh, so you visited 23 high-performing practices, and then reflected on what you found uh, in your piece in search of joy in practice. And then you and your co-authors summarized the theory for uh, what the 10 building blocks of high-performing primary care are. Can you describe what you found and what those recommendations were? Sure. So the building blocks are basically uh, descriptions of high-performing practices, and they could be their community health centers, a small private practice, a larger practice in an integrated delivery system, or even the teaching practice. Um, and the building blocks start with four kind of foundations. Um, 
And if practices have implemented these building blocks, then they're probably going to be pretty good practices. So the first foundational block is good leadership. Without that, things don't usually work very well. The second one is data-driven improvement, having really good clinical and operational data, but also using it to improve. The third one is empanelment. You really have to link patients with a primary care clinician. Um, and the, the clinicians have to know who their panel of patients are. And then the final one, the foundational building blocks are, is team-based care. We can talk about that in a minute. Um, then there are other building blocks such as access, continuity of care, coordination of care, population management, and so forth. Yeah, so all 10 of the building blocks sound really important, right? Continuity is important. Comprehensiveness is important. These are central tenets of primary care. Why are these for the foundation that the others are built upon? What makes engaged leadership, uh, data-driven improvement, empanelment, and, and team-based care so important? Well, what, what we found, in, 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 in addition to these 22 practices of non-teaching um, um, visits to non-teaching practices, We've also done now about 45 visits to, to a residency teaching practices around the country. What we found is that the, the, the practices, this is observational, you know, the practices that do not have good leadership, um, good data, and using the data to improve uh, empanelment and at least the beginnings of some, some reasonable teams, those practices generally have poor outcomes in terms of patient experience, uh, clinical outcomes, uh, you know, chronic disease, preventive care outcomes, so forth. Um, and also um, provider and staff satisfaction. Mm. It's interesting that we haven't done a, a, a really excellent research study on relating those four foundational building blocks to these um, more hard outcomes. But some people in North Carolina actually started doing that, and they found that uh, uh, they looked at, I think it was 25 uh, family medicine teaching practices, and they found that the, those that were, had high scores on those four foundational building blocks also had better chronic disease and preventive care outcomes. So there does seem to be a relationship. And we do have a, a, um, a, a instrument the Building Blocks Primary Care Assessment Tool that, that allows uh, people to self-assess or allows us to assess how different practices are doing on all of the 10 uh, building blocks, or in the case of the teaching practice, we have actually 13 building blocks. Right. So with teaching practices, you know, I, I once had a mentor who was a medical director who said, you know, in a lot of ways, having trainees and residents complicates getting the primary care workflows right. Uh, so I'm curious, what does um, what does having residents add in terms of complexity, and what, what kind of recommendations uh, do you have around that? Well, let, let me just go back a minute to your question of the first question about when we looked at the 23 non-teaching practices, what what really seemed to work the best? Mm -hmm. I'd like to go back to that and then add for the teaching practice. Does that make sense? Sure, please. So. I think we all know that there are not enough primary care clinicians, and when I use the word clinician, I mean MDs, MPs, and PAs. Not enough primary care clinicians in the country, and there probably won't be for a long time to come, and that, um, and that to do really good chronic and preventive care for a panel of 2,500 
would require 18 hours per day to do that as a lone clinician without a team. So it's impossible. So they have to say, well, let's reduce panel size so it's more reasonable. But the problem is if you don't have enough clinicians in primary care, you can't reduce panel size on a population basis. So we really need teams to really help do this work. But there are a lot of teams that are not very good. Hmm. Um, so the teams really have to, what we call, share the care among the team members and be able to increase the capacity to see more patients without additional work for clinicians. So there are a number of practices that are doing that, both teaching practices and non-teaching practices. Number one, the, our, the, the, um, the, the professional team members, let's say RNs, pharmacists, and behaviorists, if you look at research, it shows that basically RNs and pharmacists could take care of 90% of patients with diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia hmm. without any clinician involvement whatsoever. You need standing orders to make sure that happens, but they can do it. Uh, so if they did it, then you could really increase your panel size without additional work for clinicians. Behaviorists similarly can really take care of a lot of the behavioral health issues that we deal with. Also on the teams, of course, we have medical assistants, and medical assistants in some practices, not most, but in some, are doing panel management, you know, taking responsibility to make sure that patients have all the chronic and preventive sort of basic stuff taken care of. They can do health coaching to help with behavior change, and they can do documentation, which is scribing. Mm -hmm. so, so UCLA, for example, um, had a study in which a scribe in a primary care internal medicine clinic reduced the amount of time physicians took during a four-hour clinic session by 75 minutes. They saved 75 minutes out of four hours oh, wow. by doing the documentation themselves. So, so the, the bottom line is if you have a really good team that really is able to do a lot of work without increasing the work of clinicians, uh, then you can really do primary care. If you don't have that, then primary care is really, really difficult, and that's when you get into all the problems with burnout. So, so back to the teaching practices, all of those things also relate to teaching practices, but there's another thing that's really a big deal in teaching practices, and that's continuity of care. Right. And we know that continuity of care, uh, clinicians, um, patients always being able to see their primary care clinician is associated with lower costs, more patient satisfaction, more clinician satisfaction, better chronic care, better preventive care. That's really hard to do in a teaching practice, as we all know, because residents and often faculty kind of come and go. So uh, we've, we've been, been looking, looking at the teaching practices that we've visited and try to figure out, like, which ones that have good continuity of care data, how did they do that, given the, the, the part-timeness of the clinicians in that practice? And we're actually working on trying to, trying to um, write that up in terms of what are some of the strategies you can use to improve continuity of care. That's an additional issue in teaching practices. Sure. I'm curious in terms of why some clinics are able to have strong teams that function well and others that aren't. What have you noticed in terms of why it's hard for a lot of practices to get it right, and what are the barriers that some practices are facing? Well, of course, leadership is really key. <laughs> hmm. um, there are many team models, but if a lot of practices, especially teaching practices, where there are a lot of residents that are there a little a bit of the time, have these very large teams. Like I'd have like three residents from each year on a team, 
and maybe three faculty members. So that's a team of like 12 clinicians plus medical assistants and other people on the team. And if you, that team is really too big to be called a team. Now, one of the key reasons to have a team in primary care is that very good research shows that patients like small practices, but the practice, of course, we know are getting bigger and bigger. So what a team does is it takes a big practice and kind of divides it down into smaller units that patients can feel comfortable with. So we really feel that the leaders of uh, teaching practices that have created small teams, for example, one faculty person is full-time um, and three residents, one from each year, then plus the, whatever uh, nurses or medical assistants, front desk people are there to support them, that those teams are much more comfortable and you can really figure out how to use those teams better. And sometimes you have to pair two teams together so that because of all the personnel and, and scheduling issues, but smaller teams seem to work better. And then making sure that the medical assistants can do more than just room patients, hmm. which means that they have to have time to do that. And some of the practices that have done the best have two medical assistants per clinician each day instead of one. And you can do a lot of things if you do that. If you train them well and if they're doing the scribing, for example, and panel management, um, they can really uh, make life a lot easier for the clinicians and improve quality in addition. You spoke a little bit about the, the workload on the average primary care clinicians, and, and we're talking about how uh, teams can offload some of that burden. Can you speak a little bit to the role of burnout and why really we may need a quadruple aim that kind of takes into account uh, provider satisfaction and provider burnout? Sure. Now, I got interested in burnout, of course, when I was in practice because, you know, we were in a very busy practice. We, it was before the hospitalist movement, so we did the hospital and we were on call a lot and it was, it was really hard work, and there were times when I was very, very badly burned out. So I just thought, oh, well, you know, primary care is really hard, so that's just the way it is. And the, the whole discussion of burnout hadn't really started until, you know, maybe seven or eight years ago when people started doing research on it. But it's very real. Now, it's true. Doctors do whine and complain. We all do that. And, <laughs> but a lot of that is is justified. I mean, compared to some other people, some other jobs in society, being a physician is, is a great privilege and it's a pretty interesting job. But there are also a lot of big problems and the electronic medical record has certainly compounded those problems. So if you look at the work that Chris Sinsky's done, only less than 20% of, of the average primary care clinician's day is spent really face-to-face -face interacting with patients. The rest is doing desk work, doing EMR work, doing paperwork, and so forth. And that's one big, big contributor to burnout. Hmm. Now, there are other things, of course, panel sizes being too big, uh, having to go back and, and deal with your EMR documentation, you know, at 10 o'clock at night after you put the kids to bed. There are a lot of reasons for burnout. But part of it is just, number one, too much work, too many patients per clinician. Number two, teams not really helping. Um, hmm. um, and number three, the EMR is certainly a big contributor. I mean, you know, the, the EMR, the idea of the EMR is, of course, great, but the particular EMRs that we have are not great. What are some of the things you would tell clinic administrators or physicians who maybe are in the position you were at before, and they say, 
this is just the job. This is how it's supposed to be. How do you convince people that, um, no, this is actually a problem and doing things differently uh, can be a benefit to you? So burnout is, of course, affects the people who are burned out, but it also affects the patients. Um, and it also affects the whole sort of workforce projection issue. Mm-hmm. So we know that um, that when a clinician, and, and most of the work's been done with, with the doctors, but I suspect that nurse practitioners, PAs, and nurses, and so forth, it's similar. If you have a burned-out physician, a patient satisfaction goes way down, and, and patient adherence to treatment plans goes way down, uh, which means that rather that they don't take their meds, they don't uh, do the behavioral things that you need to do to improve your chronic disease, and of course that affects your chronic disease outcomes. So burnout actually seems to have a real effect on population health. Um, it also affects, you know, the, the so, so the triple aim, of course, is, you know, better population health, better patient experience. Burnout also affects that. A third of the triple aim is cost, and we're not sure if burnout affects costs or not, but it probably does. So if we have a burned-out workforce, number one, um, it discourages residents and medical students from going into primary care because they see primary care clinicians not being happy. And number two, it leads to more part-time, people going part-time from full-time, or people actually retiring early. And those things actually cause more costs for the healthcare system. Mm. So burnout is not just a a, um, thing about, you know, people complaining about their, their work as, as, as effects on the actual work and on the patients that we're trying to help. Yeah, as we're zooming out a little bit, um, at the 30,000-foot systems level, are there things that lawmakers or healthcare administrators or payers should do to help support the quadruple aim and support um, provider satisfaction and prevent burnout? You know, in my particular belief, the fee-for-service system really causes a lot of the complexities in documentation and the EMR a lot has to do with billing rather than only with health care. So I, I feel like fee-for-service payment is, is, should just disappear. Mm. But I've thought that for 50 years, and it doesn't seem to want to disappear so easily. Um, but, but I think it's more at the practice level that you can really try to fight burnout and if you look at the clinic, which to me is sort of um, a, a great model for excellent team-based care, uh, it's the Bellum Health Clinic in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, and that clinic has taken a burned-out you know, workforce, and, and practically burnout has disappeared as, as a result of the teams that they've created. So their teams have two medical systems, or they might be LPNs, per clinician. And so a visit really is sort of a half-hour affair in which the first seven or eight minutes is the care team coordinator, who's the medical assistant, taking the history, putting it in the EMR, um, making sure doing medication reconciliation, doing a lot of those things, like an expanded rooming process. Then the clinician comes in, doesn't even look at the electronic medical record. The care team coordinator is doing all the scribing. And after like 15 minutes, the clinician leaves Everything's been documented, and then the care team coordinator, who's already sent all the labs and imaging and pharmacy, you know, where it needs to go electronically, explains it all to the patient, uh, makes sure there's follow-up for the patient, maybe does some behavior change counseling, um, 
and then the, and then the uh, clinician spends about three minutes um, finishing up the documentation so it's all done. So the clinician is, and of course, while the the the, the um, care team coordinator is finishing up and starting the visit, the clinician's going to the next patient with the other care, care team coordinator is doing the same thing. And it just works like a charm. And they can actually pay for it by a couple of extra patients per day and being able to bill more 99214s because the documentation is so good. So it pays for itself. Hmm. So I think, I think that one really has to think in those terms um, and that's really more on the, on the provider organization level rather than the sort of the larger sort of health policy um, institutions level. Do you think there's, there should be ways that we're measuring the fourth aim and we're, and we're measuring burnout, or, or do you think the downstream effects of improving it on population health and patient satisfaction and, and, and um, the patient experience of care and, and possibly health care expenditure is, is enough? No, I think we do. We really should be measuring uh, burnout, not only with uh, clinicians, but everyone in the practice. And, you know, most of the research on burnout has been done with the MASLAC burnout inventory, but it's a pretty uh, long sort of thing to administer to everyone. But there's now this mini V uh, score. Uh, it's 10 questions. You can just look it up on Google. Uh, Google Mini Z, and you'll see all these t- these ten questions, which are very simple. Like, am I satisfied with my job? Do I feel burnout? Not at all. Some, a lot. And if that's administered, everyone in the practice, like maybe every year, one could get a much better idea of of how things are going. I would definitely recommend that as one sort of standard part of data that practices should should use. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I ask how you find the 23 practices or the 45 that you go and do site visits for? How do they come to your attention? The high-performing practices, it's kind of, you ask people who know about primary care, you just ask everybody, this is where we started, you know, what's what's the best practice that you've ever seen? Um, and you get a whole list of names. Um, and we did the, the same thing with the teaching practices, in which we asked people, what are some really, really excellent um high-performing teaching practices in internal medicine or family medicine. And we get a bunch of names. Then we call them up. We ask them a bunch of questions. And the questions would have to do with what kind of data do you keep? Are all your patients impaneled to a clinician? Um, What kind of teams do you have? How's your continuity of care? And sort of get some idea of whether it really seems like they really are a good practice. And then you pick the ones that were recommended and seem to have reasonable, so those four foundational building blocks plus maybe some 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 data that they'll give you to to show that they actually are doing a good job. So there there are a lot of wonderful practices around the country. We call them bright spots, and I think it's great to visit them because it 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 really shows you like okay, primary care can really work well, and sort of and and. and Sometimes, you know, primary care seems to be kind of a slog and it's really hard and it's difficult um, and it really kind of boards your spirits to go see somewhere that really works well. You have a kind of a wider and longer lens on this than I do, uh, but there seems to be a growing interest in addressing social determinants uh, and health equity. 
Uh, and a lot of what you've done in your career has been bridging the microsystem environment of the clinic to the, the macrosystem environment of, of broader systems, uh, not just healthcare systems, but health systems. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you think primary care, you know, on that spectrum in, in, in preventive care, uh, how primary care can, can be bridged more effectively to upstream factors, community and public health, or, or maybe, maybe even vice versa? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and, you know, primary care is really, really busy, and it's really hard for primary care to actually begin to, to think about the social determinants of health, but we should. So there are some practices that are just starting out by just asking some questions that are not in the, the usual social history or past medical history. So some, some practices are, are giving all the patients, especially community health centers, um, are giving all the patients like a, a list of but of issues, do you have trouble getting the food you need? Are you having trouble paying for your health care? So you can follow up with people, try to link them to services in the community that might help them. Now, there are other places that have gotten, gone much deeper into it, and I think of the most interesting example is the Vermont Blueprint for Health, where they have um, community health teams that are separate from primary care that deal with these social determinants and that link to the primary care practices in, I think it's like 13 or 14 regions of Vermont. So there are, there are people are starting to deal with this, and I think that's great. Um, and hopefully that will begin, we'll be dealing with, with, with this more as time goes on. Okay, Tom Bodenheimer, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Good talking to you, and, and good luck to you. been listening to Review of Systems. You can find links to Dr. Tom Bodenheimer's work at our website, www.rospod.org. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on your podcast platform and share us with your friends and colleagues. You can join the conversation by dropping us a line at contact at rospod.org or talking to us on any of our social media platforms. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. The Harvard Center for Primary Care is sponsoring a conference on October 10th in Boston entitled Primary Care in 2020, Future Challenges, Tips for Today. The conference aims to help leaders in primary care prepare for an uncertain future while still delivering high-quality patient care right now. Among many other distinguished leaders in primary care, Dr. Jeffrey Brunner, founder of the Camden Coalition and featured in Atul Gawande's famous Hotspotters article, will speak. Review Systems listeners can enter the code RADIO in all lowercase to receive 15% discount on the registration fees for all of the various options. You can find a link to the registration form and agenda for the conference on our website, or you can go directly to the Harvard Center for Primary Care site at primarycare.hms.harvard.edu. That's primarycare.hms.harvard.edu and enter the promo code radio.